The Word of God, the Holy Bible, is a treasure and a gift beyond compare. Every passage of it points to a marvelous truth that God's love for man impelled him to step out of eternity and unite with his creation in order to redeem him from sin. Jesus Christ is both the author and subject of this precious word. Join us at the Superior Word each week as we search out this wonderful gift in search of Christ Jesus. All right, Psalm 16, a michtam of David. Preserve me, O God, for in you I put my trust. O my soul, you have said to the Lord, you are my Lord. My goodness is nothing apart from you. As for the saints who are in the earth, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. Their sorrows shall be multiplied who hasten after another God. Their drink offerings of blood I will not offer, nor take up their names on my lips. O Lord, you are the portion of my inheritance and my cup. You maintain my lot. The lines have fallen to me in pleasant places. Yes, I have a good inheritance. I will bless the Lord who has given me counsel. My heart also instructs me in the night seasons. I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be moved. Therefore, my heart is glad and my glory rejoices. My flesh also will rest in hope. For you will not leave my soul in Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. You will show me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Okay, we are still in the book of Deuteronomy. We should be done with it very soon, but we're in Deuteronomy chapter 14, starting a new chapter today. And we're going to look at the first two verses, Deuteronomy 14, verses 1 and 2. You are the children of the Lord your God. You shall not cut your sons nor shave the front of your head for the dead, for you are a holy people too, the Lord your God, and the Lord has chosen you to be a people for himself, a special treasure above all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. Before I get into this, I want to let you know that um, the things that I'm going to talk about in the sermon today uh, you may not even know why I'm talking about it. You may say, why is he referring back to all these old passages and what is he bringing all of this up for? Um, it's because there is a particular passage in Genesis chapter 6 that has a group of people known as the Nephilim and uh, irresponsibly handling the Bible will lead you to one conclusion or another or properly taking the Bible in context will lead to another conclusion. And this is that particular issue that I'm referring to here because of what Moses just said in the verses we read. Um, I do not need a lot of emails saying why I'm wrong on this. Okay, please don't do that. I know that I'm correct. I know that this is the correct interpretation of what is being said. And if you want to believe otherwise, that is absolutely fine. I'm not going to argue with you over it. Um, but this is the correct interpretation of these verses. So, chapter 14 of Deuteronomy is divided into three separate sections. It's divided into improper mourning, proper adherence to dietary laws, and what to do with, meaning how to properly handle the blessings bestowed upon the people. However, each of these three main points is based upon the first words of the passage, you are the children of the Lord your God. Everything else stems from that first clause, and it is then further defined in verse 2. What does it mean when the Bible speaks of the sons of God? Because in the Hebrew, it actually says sons rather than children. That's why I'm asking this question. The first instance of the term is found in Genesis 6, verse 2. 
There, it is a highly contested phrase among scholars, as if the countless other uses of the term in Scripture have nothing to do with the phrase as it is used there. This is so much the case that the most fanciful interpretations have arisen to explain it. And fanciful is both exciting and it is profitable. So most people normally hold fast to a most fanciful interpretation, and those who can profit off of them present that most fanciful interpretation, renewing it from time to time in order to make a bit more off a new book or a new video. I'll stop right there and I'll say this. Yesterday I was talking to the people after mission work. We were at IHOP having our usual lunch, and I said I could do a sermon on this subject and I could get 500,000 views on the first day. Okay, or the prophecy updates. If I was to give exciting titles and say things that I just wanted to say without any context from the Bible, we could be getting 300,000 views a week. And I'm not going to do that. The Bible is not to be abused, and it is to be handled properly, and it is to be treated carefully. Okay, so this is not responsible theology to take a thing like this and to make something sensational, and it edifies no one. The real key to understanding the phrase there in Genesis 6 is actually found in Job 1 and 2. Almost everyone agrees on that, but not everyone has a correct understanding of those verses in Job. I admit right now, I did not. There was a disconnect between my understanding of the term there and my understanding of the term elsewhere in Scripture. That was thankfully resolved when some marvelous people, Benzer and Sandra, traveled to the United States from the United Kingdom in order to visit the church, which ironically happened exactly one year ago this week. The first time we were together at my house, Benzer brought up the Nephilim in Genesis chapter 6, and I immediately thought, here we go again, another loose cannon. That lasted about two seconds until he explained why my thought on Job 1 and 2 was incorrect. The light came on, and I said, well, that sounds correct, but there's a lot of work to do before I agree to this. And so instead of doing whatever thing we had planned to do, we sat down at the computer and went through every single instance of the phrase Ha Elohim, or the God, found in Scripture. We do not form sound doctrine and proper theology any other way. Our text verse comes from James 4, it is verse 7. Therefore, Submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Being a son of God is, first and foremost, a mark of humanity. This will be explained as we continue on today. There is, within the Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. But the Son in that capacity is a term used to indicate a position within the Godhead. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. When the term Son of God is used in the Gospels, it is referring to the human Jesus who is God's Son. He is the Son of God who is a man. Curiously, the term Son of Man that is used so often concerning Jesus is more closely associated in thought with his deity, not his humanity. He is a man, but he is a man who is God. If you doubt this, go read every instance of Son of God and Son of Man in the Gospels, and there are a lot of them, and see if it's correct or not. It is. As this is so, the term Son of God is one that refers to humanity. How does one become a Son of God? James 4, 7, our text verse, gives us an insight into it. In submitting to God and resisting the devil, the devil will flee from us. 
The implication is that the devil is the problem. John makes it explicit in 1 John 3, verse 8, where he says, he who sins is of the devil. Let me ask you a question. Does the Bible say anything about people sinning? How many people? All have sinned. All people are of the devil until they come to Christ. I'll finish that verse now. He who sins is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. For this purpose, the Son of God was manifested, that he might destroy the works of the devil. Where does sin come from? It comes from a violation of law. Where does the law come from? It comes from God. In violating God's law, sin enters the picture. With sin comes death and separation from God. How is that restored? It's not restored through the law. The devil uses the law to separate us from God. What is the answer? It is available, and it is to be found in God's superior word. And so let us turn to that precious word once again, and may God speak to us through his word today, and may his glorious name ever be praised. Our first thought today is translation matters, context matters. It's one half of verse one. The contents of the previous passage were almost entirely in the singular, with just one exception. Moses was speaking to Israel as a collective whole. Now to open chapter 14, he immediately switches to the plural to address them. Verse 1, you are the children of the Lord your God. Banim atem Yehovah Elohechem. Sons, you all are of Yehovah all your God. Of these words, Charles Ellicott rightly and poignantly states, this fact has made the foundation of all the laws of ceremonial and moral holiness in the Pentateuch, more especially in the book of Leviticus, where these laws are chiefly to be found. When he says the Pentateuch, it means the five books of Moses. Although Israel was only introduced later in Genesis, and then the nation of Israel only truly received its calling in Exodus, the entirety of these five books must be considered in this truth. And from that foundation, all of the rest of the Old Testament finds its basis, both among the people of Israel, but also among the sons of God who are not of Israel, such as Job. And from there, the work of the Redeemer is introduced, fulfilling what is stated in this law, in which concerns these sons of Jehovah and how they are brought fully to a right state of sonship to the Lord God. One cannot look at these words of Moses to Israel now without understanding what it means to be a son of Jehovah, meaning a son of God, without taking a much more intimate look at the concept, even from the earliest time of man on earth. The idea first goes back to the opening words of Genesis 6. There it says, Now it came to pass when men began to multiply on the face of the earth, and daughters were born to them, that the sons of God saw the daughters of men, that they were beautiful, and they took wives for themselves of all whom they chose. There it uses the term bene ha Elohim, or sons of the God. The definite article was, and it continues throughout scripture to be expressive, it is used when referring to the one true God in relation to man, but more especially, it is in relation to those who are in a right relationship with him, or it is used to contrast those who are not in a right relationship with him. In the Bible, the term sons of God more expressly focuses on one's humanity. 
When Jesus is called the Son of God, it is true that he is the divine Son of God, but the term more appropriately is referring to his humanity. He is the true Son of God, the perfect ideal of man in relation to God. This idea extends to all people who stand in a proper relationship to God. The sons of the God of Genesis 6 verse 1 refers to this relationship between men and the God. Before that term was introduced, a set division of humanity was carefully laid out so that when the term was given, there should not be a mistake as to what it was conveying. But mistakes do come. Errors in thinking do arise. Genesis 4 immediately introduced Cain and Abel. Abel was shown to be right with God through his actions of faith. Cain was not. Cain killed Abel demonstrating the enmity between the two thoughts. If you want to read more on that, go to 1 John 3, verses 10 through 12. From there, chapter 4 carefully details Cain and his line, a line separate from and at enmity with God. At the end of the chapter, however, another line was introduced with the words. From Genesis chapter 4, And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and named him Seth. For God has appointed another seed for me instead of Abel, whom Cain killed. And as for Seth, to him also a son was born, and he named him Enosh. Then men began to call on the name of the Lord. Chapter 5 then lists this second line, a line that is right with God. Did everybody hear what I just read? Then men began to call on the name of the Lord. Which line does that say it in reference to? Cain or Abel, or Cain or Seth, I should say. Seth. Okay, everybody got that? There's a reason why words are in the order they are in, in Scripture. Okay, I'll read that again. Chapter 5 then lists the second line. It is a line that is right with God. It is the line of sonship, meaning a line of faith in the promises of God. This is why these two divergent lines are highlighted immediately after the fall. The Word of God will introduce a subject. It gives details based on that subject, and then the word goes back and fills in more details to more fully flesh out what is being conveyed. The simple example of giving the book of Judges and only later giving the book of Ruth, a book that rightly belongs in the chronology of the book of Judges, shows how this occurs. This happens time and time and time again in Scripture. The account of Joseph being sold into a life of servitude in Egypt is introduced. Immediately after that, the story of the line of Judah through his relationship with his own daughter-in-law is then given. And only then does the narrative return to Joseph in Egypt. And so, to understand this idea of being sons of Jehovah and thus sons of the God from its proper context, the first two uses of the term Ha Elohim or the God were provided where? In the line of Cain? In Genesis chapter 4? No, they were provided in Genesis 5 when speaking of Enoch. After he begot Methuselah, Enoch walked with the God 300 years and had sons and daughters. So all the days of Enoch were 365 years and Enoch walked with the God and he was not for God took him. Enoch was a man who was clearly in a right relationship with the God, and the article was given to solidify that fact. 
The next use of the article was twice in Genesis 6 when referring to this line of people who stood in this proper relationship with God. They are Bene Ha Elohim, or sons of the God. That this is the correct interpretation of this is first seen when the next use of the article before God was found in Genesis 6-9 when speaking of Noah, who is in a right relationship with him. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. This is the genealogy of Noah. Noah was a just man, perfect in his generations. Noah walked with the God. Now, the reason why I'm stressing this is because the word Elohim is used like 3,000 plus times in the Bible, but only about 350 or more times is the article included before it. And unless translators put that article in there, you have no idea that it says that, and you have no idea what is being relayed. And so people make unfounded conclusions about what is going on in Genesis 6 verse 1 and 2, and it affects all of their theology through the rest of the Bible, because a word is not properly translated in the Bible. The God Using the same word spoken of concerning Enoch, but in an emphatic form, Noah is likewise said to be of this godly line, et ha Elohim hitalek Noach, with the God walked Noah. In other words, Enoch was a son of the God, being in a right standing with him. Noah was likewise. However, immediately after that, the article is again used to define the state of the Nephilim, or fallen ones, already referred to in the chapter. The word Nephilim is not referring to a hybrid product of humans sleeping with angels, something the Bible never refers to nor hints at. Rather, it is speaking of those who are not in a right standing with the God. Rather, they are fallen. Here's what it says in Genesis 6. The earth was corrupt before the God, and the earth was filled with violence. So God looked upon the earth, and indeed it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. In other words, the use of the article is expressing the contrast between the two lines that exist in the presence of the God. Noah is one of them, the others are not. This is why the definite article is so meticulously and precisely used in these accounts. In following this term, we follow the thought of Scripture as it presents to us man's status before God. The next time the article is used is not until way later in Genesis 17. It is at a time when it is necessary to define those who are or who are not in this right son relationship. Here's what it says in Genesis 17. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said in his heart, shall a child be born to a man who is 100 years old? And shall Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? And Abraham said to the God, oh, that Ishmael might live before you. The implication is that Abraham was petitioning for Ishmael to define the line of right standing with God, but that was rejected. Another son would come who would be in that position. When a possible interruption of that promise came about in Genesis 20, the article is used twice to confirm the right standing of Abraham before God to Abimelech, who had Abraham's wife Sarah. Following that, in Genesis 22, in the great test of faith of this man of faith, the definite article is used three times, confirming Abraham's right standing before the God. 
carefully following the use of the article before Elohim or God in the Bible consistently reveals the relationship between man and the true God. This means either a right relationship or the lack of it. This is true in the more than 370 uses of the article. And this is what Benzer and Sandra, poor Sandra, probably thought she was going out to the beach or something. This is what they did with me for the next several hours because I said, I'm not going to agree to a proposal unless I have checked it out. And so we sat down at the computer and we went through every instance of this word, including Sergio in the conversation as well. When it is necessary to define the true God, the article is used. An example of this, and which defines this relationship, is found in 2 Chronicles 35. In that chapter, the word Elohim, or God, is found five times. The first use in verse 3 defines God as the true God by identifying as Jehovah, saying to the people of Israel, Now serve the Lord Jehovah, your God. The second use in verse 8 refers to Beit Ha Elohim, or house of the God. Thus, it clearly defines the house, meaning the temple, as that pertaining to the true God. However, the three final uses of Elohim in the chapter are when Pharaoh Nico is referred to. If you've ever read this passage, you've wondered why God is speaking to Pharaoh. We're going to read it now, and I'll explain to you why. But he sent messengers to him, saying, What have I to do with you, king of Judah? Have I not come against you this day? but against the house with which I have war. For God commanded me to make haste, refrain from meddling with God, who is with me, lest he destroy you. Nevertheless, Josiah would not turn his face from him, but disguised himself so that he might fight with him. And he did not heed the words of Nico from the mouth of God. They capitalized it in the New King James Version, assuming that it's the God, when in fact it wasn't. So he came to fight in the valley of Megiddo. When you're reading that account, you say, why would he disobey God? Because God was speaking to Pharaoh, right? The reason why I know this is because somebody asked me the question years ago and I went and I checked. And there are articles and lack of articles in the passage, which tells you what God is doing. In all three instances there, the article is lacking, thus signifying that it is not the true God that Pharaoh communicated with, but rather with his own false God or gods, because the word Elohim can mean one God or it can mean many gods. One must carefully evaluate each instance of the use of the article and also maintain the proper context of the passage or errors in theology, such as the misrepresentation of who the Nephilim of Genesis 6 are, will inevitably be the result. This is especially true when considering that the only other two uses of the term Bene Ha Elohim, or sons of the God, found in all of Scripture, are in Job 1 and 2. Guess what? I'm going to read them too, and then we're going to evaluate them. Now, there was a day when the sons of the God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. And the Lord said to Satan, from where do you come? So Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking back and forth on it. And again, there was a day when the sons of the God, Beneha Elohim, came to present themselves before the Lord. And Satan came also among them to present himself before the Lord. And the Lord said to Satan, from where do you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth and walking back and forth on it. Okay, 
One instance is in Genesis 1 and 2 with the Nephilim. The second instance is in Job 1, and the third instance is in Job 2. Those are the only three instances of Bene Ha Elohim in Scripture. The error of analysis is made in these verses by many, and it is that the sons of the God are angels and that they are presenting themselves before the Lord. This is incorrect. This is not speaking of angels, but of men presenting themselves before the true God, just as Enoch did, just as Abraham did, and just as all the other uses of the article in the Bible demonstrate a right relationship of man before the true God or the lack thereof. This becomes perfectly evident from the reference made in Job 38, verse 7, which all scholars who incorrectly identify the Nephilim as angels use to justify their position on this matter. I'm going to read it to you, and I'm going to tell you why they're wrong. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me, if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? To what were its foundations fastened? Or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? Sounds like the same thing as Job 1 and 2, doesn't it? It's not. In this passage, the term used is bene Elohim, sons of God, not bene ha Elohim or sons of the God. The article is left off because it is not speaking of men in relation to the true God. If this is even speaking of angels, which is probably not the case, there is no need to include the article because both angels and demons know who the true God is. However, these words in Job 38 are probably not speaking of angels at all. Instead, it is more probably referring to the early formation of stars as detailed in the Genesis account, harmonically resonating as the word of God was spoken forth in the act of creation. In other words, the Lord is speaking in what is known as parallelism in Job 38. Parallelism is a literary device where something is stated and then it is repeated in another way to make the point more poignant. From Job 38, verses 4 through 7, I'm going to read you those verses and show you the parallelism. Where were you, Job, when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you, Job, have understanding. And then the next set, who determined its measurements? That's talking about the size of the earth. Or who stretched the line? Does everybody know what stretching the line is? It's taking a measurement. Who stretched the line upon it? It's speaking of the size of the earth. To whom were its foundations fastened? That's the underpinnings of the earth. Or who laid its cornerstone? That's talking of the underpinnings of the earth. And then we come to this verse here. When the morning star sang together, the early star formation, and all the sons of God shouted for joy. The early star formation. It's not speaking about angels at all. The questions of the Lord continue in parallelism throughout that passage. And so there is no reason to assume that the morning stars are being poetically equated to angels, but rather to actual stars. The lack of the article in this verse demonstrates this because the article is specifically used to express the nature of the true God in relation to man. Man was not yet created in that section of Job, and so the article is left off. However, the article is used in Job 1 and 2 to expressly set those verses apart 
from the notion that God is speaking of angelic beings. This then obviously invites the question, then what is Satan doing there, walking among the sons of the God? The answer is clearly expressed elsewhere in Scripture. Satan is explicitly said to be the accuser of the brethren, meaning believers in Revelation chapter 12. Here's what it says. Then I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, now salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ have come for the accuser of our brethren who accused them before our God day and night has been cast down. Okay, earlier in the uh, service today, Jim asked the question, when was this time speaking of when Satan was cast down? And he gave three options because I gave three options in the commentary. Was it before, you know, man at the, the beginning of creation? Was it at the cross? Or is it in the book of Revelation sometime future? And the answer is at the beginning. Satan was cast out. There was a war among the angels. Satan was cast out. How do we know that? Because he is the ruler of the earth, the air, right? Okay. He's the ruler of the earth. And Jesus even said, now the son of man will be glorified because the ruler of the earth is cast down. He wasn't cast down out of heaven. He's being cast out of the earth. Now, first he lost his heavenly realm and then his earthly realm. So that answers your question from the beginning of our talk today in both Job one and two, it is not referring to angels at all. Rather, it is referring to humans who anticipate the coming of Messiah. Thus, they are sons of the God who have presented themselves before the Lord. Satan then has come among them because he's the ruler of the earth in an attempt to sift them, exactly as he sifted Christ's followers, as is recorded in Luke 22. And the Lord said, Simon, Simon, indeed, Satan has asked for you that he may sift you as wheat. He can't do that if he's up in heaven but he can do it if he's down here on the earth. But I have prayed for you that your faith should not fail. And when you have returned to me, strengthen your brethren. Peter said later in his epistle says exactly this concerning believers in 1 Peter chapter 5. Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. That's why he's walking among the sons of the God in Job chapter 1. They are anticipating the Messiah, and he's walking among them to sift them, okay? Resist him, steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. But may the God of all grace, who called us to his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after you have suffered a while, perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you. To him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. The idea presented in Job 1 and Job 2 is not that Satan has come before the Lord with other angels. Rather, it is that the sons of the God, meaning those like Job, who are those who fear God and shun evil, have come before the true God. If you want to know more about that, go read Job 1.1 and Job 1.8, which precede that sentence about the devil. Though not being in the line of the Messiah, they are faithful believers in the promise of the coming of Messiah. Remember back in Genesis 5 where it says men began to call on the name of the Lord? That is the people in the right relationship with the God. That's why the article was first used in chapter 5 when speaking of those people like Enoch. All right? They have presented themselves before the God and Satan has come among them to sift them. This is exactly the premise of Satan's testing of Job with the approval of the Lord that is conveyed in the surrounding passage. 
To further confirm this, the word used in Job that says they came to present themselves before the God is the word Yatsav. It is used in exactly the same way concerning men presenting themselves before the Lord in Numbers 11. Here's what it says. So the Lord said to Moses, gather to me 70 men of the elders of Israel, whom you know to be elders of the people and officers over them. Bring them to the tabernacle of meeting that they may stand there with you. But more importantly, this is seen again in Joshua 24 verse 1. Then Joshua gathered all the tribes of Israel to Shechem and called for the elders of Israel, for their heads, for their judges, and for their officers, and they yatsav, they presented themselves before God. There, it says they presented themselves, lifne ha Elohim, before the God, just as they do in Job. Such instances clearly define what is later referred to in the book of Job. The same word, yatsav, translated as present, is again used in this same context in 1 Samuel chapter 10. Then Samuel called the people together to the Lord at Mizpah and said to the children of Israel, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, I brought up Israel out of Egypt and delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all kingdoms and from those who oppressed you. But you have today rejected your God, who himself saved you from all your adversaries and your tribulations. And you have said to him, No, set a king over us. Now, therefore, Yatsav, present yourselves before the Lord, Yehovah, by your tribes and by your clans. In this passage, the article before the word God is unnecessary because he is defined by the name of the true God, Yehovah. If Yehovah is used, there's no point in saying Ha Elohim because you already know that he's the true God. But when it's not used, you will see the term Ha Elohim when it is necessary. To fully appreciate this connection of the use of the article before Elohim or God to the relationship of human beings towards the true God, one must go through all 370 plus instances of the term Ha Elohim expressed in scripture. Poor Sandra, as she sat there watching me and Benzer go through them. Only in doing, I love you, Sandra. I wish you were here right now. I miss them. I think of them every day. Every time we have pizza, especially because they introduced us to the pizza people down the way, right? They walked in there and they said, oh, we're here to attend a church from uh, the UK. They said, what church? And they said, it's a little church right down the way. And so now whenever I go in there, I say hi to them and we have a good time together. And a couple days ago, I walked in there to get some bread because they make the best bread in the world. And I said, guess what today is? They said, what? I said, it's an anniversary. And I said, what? I said, it's an anniversary, a really special one. And she, she thought about it a second. She said, the day you came in here, I said, best day of my life. There you go. Really wonderful people. Okay. So where was I? Um, okay. Only in doing this will one see that every use follows the same contextual pattern. In this one can then appreciate the error in thinking that has resulted from accepting the view that angelic beings are sleeping with humans and producing aberrant hybrids of mutants. Such fanciful analyses are dramatic, they are sensational, and I guarantee you that they sell well. But they improperly analyze Scripture. They introduce contradictions into Scripture, and they fail to consider the use of the definite article preceding Elohim as it is intended. They neglect the context of the surrounding passages, and they fail to take into account the whole body of Scripture that is necessary to properly and rightly divide the word concerning what is being said. Satan did not sleep with Eve in order to cause man to fall. 
Rather, he deceived the woman through a manipulation of scripture and Adam accepted his presentation over the word of the Lord. This is how he attempted to lead Christ astray as well. The devil misuses the word of God, meaning law, in order to introduce sin. Through the introduction of sin, the devil gains his foothold over man. It is through deceit, temptation, affliction, opposition, and accusation that he works out his plans. This is how he operates, not by having his fallen angels, which are spirit beings, sleep with human beings, something not possible for spirits, by the way. To understand more on the misanalysis of who the Nephilim are in Genesis chapter 6, you can go back and watch that sermon. The Bible is written for man about man's right or wrong relationship with God. That is clearly expressed in scripture. When one is in a right standing with him, he is termed a son of the God through faith. This is the case in both Testaments, and it is the case with the first clause of this most important verse of Deuteronomy 14. Banim atem Yehovah Elohechem. Sons, you are of Yehovah your God. Sons of God through faith in his promise. This is how the deal is sealed. One cannot be a doubting Thomas and expect the title of son of God to him be dealed. But if we just trust in what God has done, if we hold fast to the promise, believing in the word concerning God's son and not continuing as a doubting Thomas, then all good things will come to us. God will be pleased with the faith we possess. Yes, if we place our trust in the Lord Jesus and him as Lord, we do confess. This is what God would ask of you. This is what God expects you to do. Our second thought today is a holy people, a special treasure. It's verses one continued and two. The sons of God are those who live life in relation to Messiah. In the Old Testament, it is those who anticipated the coming of Messiah. Enoch did, Noah did, and Abraham did, among others in that select line. But Job also did, and he lived his life according to that promise. How do we know this? It is because the hope of Messiah is the hope of restoration in life. Job's words clearly indicate that he possessed this hope. From Job 19, for I know that my Redeemer lives. What is he basing that on? Genesis 3, verse 15. And he shall stand at last on the earth. And after my skin is destroyed, this I know, that in my flesh I shall see God. Is this a Jew writing these words? Absolutely not. This is a Gentile outside of the line of promise, whom I shall see for myself and my eyes shall behold, and not another, how my heart yearns within me. He is a son of the God by faith. It is this that made him a son of the God, faith. For Israel, that term, son of the God, is more fully defined using the divine name, Jehovah. The more precise relationship was established in Exodus chapter 6. And God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Yitzhak, and to Yaakov. I decided to give you the uh, Hebrew version there as God Almighty. But by my name, Lord, I was not known to them. That Lord, L-O-R-D, is Jehovah. The name translated both there in Exodus and here in Deuteronomy as Lord is Jehovah. The people of Israel are called sons of Jehovah because this is how God had revealed himself to them. With this in mind, Cambridge notes, 
But when all the Old Testament references to God as the Father, whether of Israel or Israelites, and to them as his children have been reckoned up, how few are they in comparison to the number of times that sons and children of God occur in the New Testament? God has sent forth the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. That's Galatians 4, verse 6. Joint heirs with Christ, Romans 8, 17. Their somewhat dismissive note doesn't change the fact that Moses now calls them sons of Jehovah. It is a truth and a calling that is set forth by him, and thus it is to be accepted as such. Before I go on, what Cambridge is saying is that the term sons of God is actually many more in the New Testament, and it's applied to any who have faith in Christ. It doesn't matter if they're Jew or Gentile. Everybody got that? And he's saying there's only a few of those terms in the Old Testament. Well, actually, that's not true. If you count in the article before Elohim, Ha Elohim, and if you count in every instance of the word Lord, in relation to Israel. Then it's about a billion times. That's why I said they're a little dismissive in that and they're not studying properly. It is for this reason that they were to apply the moral and holy laws of the Lord, speaking of Israel, carefully to their walk before him. Understanding this, Moses continues addressing the people in the plural with verse one going on, you shall not cut yourselves. Lotit gol gedu, no shall you all gash yourselves. It is a new word in scripture, gadad, signifying to penetrate or to cut. It comes from gud, meaning to invade or to attack. Thus it signifies to crowd or to gash. The idea is that of pressing oneself like a crowd presses in to form a break in the line. The words here are similar to that found in Leviticus 19. You shall not make any cuttings in your flesh for the dead, nor tattoo any marks on you. I am the Lord." Gashing oneself had varying purposes. One of them was to petition one's God in an almost mournful way, such as found of the worshipers of Baal in 1 Kings chapter 18. It says there, and so it was at noon that Elijah mocked them and said, cry aloud for he is a God. Either he is meditating or he's busy or he's on a journey or perhaps he's sleeping and must be awakened. So they cried aloud and cut themselves, as was their custom, with knives and lances, until the blood gushed out on them. And when midday was past, they prophesied until the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice. But there was no voice. No one answered. No one paid attention. No kidding. The worshipers of Baal were in great distress because there had been no answer to their petition, and Elijah was having fun poking at that over them. Likewise, the implication here in Deuteronomy is that this is intended as a sign of mourning, as is further seen in the next words. Verse 1 continues, Nor shave the front of your head for the dead. Velo tasimu karecha ben enechem lamet. And no shall you all place baldness between your eyes to the dead. In other words, they were not to shave their forehead. Our friend Rhoda was reading this a couple weeks ago, and she noted that this may be a pun based on the previous verse. In verse 13, 18, which closed out the last chapter, it said the people were to do what is right in the eyes of the Lord. Now it says to not place baldness between their eyes, implying that it is an act that is not right in the eyes of the Lord. Both acts were a defilement of the body as a sign of mourning. But why would that be? Because people mourn, don't they? We all mourn, so why is it wrong to do that? Here's the answer. These were pagan practices that defiled the body created in the image of God. 
They were for superstitious reasons in relation to the gods of the people and as a sign of exceptional mourning that the person was forever lost due to the end of his life. Is that a hope in Messiah? Absolutely not. To gash oneself would release the blood. But the Lord has said that the life is in the blood. To shed one's own blood would be a way of demonstrating through mourning for the dead that the life was lost and there was no hope. To shave one's forehead was equally objectionable because the forehead is the place of conscience and identification. To shave the head from the forehead was an acknowledgement that the conscience and identification of that dead person was forever lost. These were forbidden, firstly, because there is one God, and it is not the false gods of these nations. The second reason was for exactly the reason that was talked about earlier, the hope of Messiah. Israel was not to mourn in such ways because they were the people of God through whom this hope was promised. It would be inconsistent to grieve in such a manner, as if all hope was lost, when considering that Jehovah had called them as a people for exactly the opposite reason. They were the people of God, and it is through them that Messiah would come. And because of this, the hope was assured. This is the reason why this thought now is expressly tied to the first thought, meaning that they were sons of Jehovah. Is everybody getting this? Isn't it wonderful? Through him is the promise of life, meaning Messiah. And there was therefore to be no such mourning as if all hope had perished. This is exactly what was so beautifully expressed by Martha at the grave of Lazarus. Then Martha, as soon as she heard that Jesus was coming, went and met him. But Mary was sitting in the house. Now Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask of God... God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Here it is. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. I am a Jew. I am the people of the Messiah. This is my hope. She knew. Now, before I go on, I will say that my friend that I grew up with since I was in ninth grade, one day his wife called me and said, I need you at my house right now. And I didn't waste a second. I'd never gotten a call like that from her before I went there. And their oldest daughter had died. And I walked in there and I couldn't think of anything else but to do is to read John chapter 11 to them because we have the same hope that Martha had. Martha mourned for her brother, but it was a mourning of separation, not hopeless loss. Jesus commended her for her faith and then received acknowledgement from her of how great that faith actually was. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God who is to come into the world. We read such verses as this one that we're looking at in Deuteronomy here in the Old Testament, and we think that they are completely disconnected from faith in Christ. In fact, exactly the opposite is true. They are intimately tied into the idea of Messiah. Martha's words clearly demonstrate this because she was under the Old Testament economy, folks. No hope? On the contrary, great is my confidence in the promises of the Lord. This is in accord with Paul's words, which say from 1 Thessalonians 4, our hope 
But I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. With this understanding, Moses continues, verse 2. I know that took a while, but we're in verse 2. For you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The words of this clause are identical, word for word and letter for letter to Deuteronomy 7, verse 6. They are similar to the words of a portion of Exodus 19, verse 6, but the meaning between them is vastly different. To grasp that difference and how important it is, one should really go back and review the comments of that Deuteronomy 7 sermon. If you don't remember it, you need to brush up on it because it was very important to what we're looking at right now. If Israel was to demonstrate whether they were truly sons of the Lord or not, they were to conduct themselves as a people holy to the Lord. Thus, the statement that opened the passage must be taken as a conditional one. It is certain that the Pharisees of Jesus' time minutely abided by the tenets of this chapter. And yet Jesus, when speaking to them, said that they were of their father, the devil. Therefore, there is for Israel a positional sonship that all of the people enjoyed and an actual sonship that only those of faith participated in. Again, we will not dwell on the meaning of this clause because it was minutely analyzed in chapter 7. Verse 2 finishes with, And the Lord has chosen you to be a people for himself, a special treasure above all peoples who are on the face of the earth. I need to qualify that right now so you don't have an error in your theology. The Hebrew says, Me kol, out of or from all. It does not say above all. Everybody got that? Here the words are very similar to the final two clauses of Deuteronomy 7 verse 6. Taken side by side, this can be seen. And the Lord has chosen you to be a people for himself, a special treasure above all peoples who are on the face of the earth. And then here, the Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for himself, a special treasure above all the peoples on the face of the earth. Despite some translational differences that do not exist in the Hebrew, the only substantial differences between the two are that this verse includes the word and, and it leaves off the word your God. Other than that, they are almost identical. For this reason, I am not going to reevaluate the words for you today. Rather, it's a part of the same sermon I just told you to go watch. When you go home, please be sure to re-watch or re-read what is outlined there. The main point is that Israel is set apart as holy, even if they do not act as such. In other words, they are holy to the Lord as a people, even if the people are unholy before the Lord. Does everybody see that? In this state, they are a special treasure to the Lord who are out of, not above all, the peoples on the face of the earth. This is an important distinction in translation that must be made. Israel is not above all the nations, but has been taken out of all the nations. This was for the Lord's own purposes, and it sets them apart as distinct, but it also bears a very heavy burden. It is a burden that they have failed to bear up under, and it has, because of their own lack of faith, brought them much grief and much sorrow. For now, we will close with the thought that it is through Jesus that one becomes a true and forever son of God. And that only comes about by faith. It cannot come apart from it. The law has been given to show us this, and Israel has been the means by which that demonstration has been made. 
This is true both in the lives of individual people who come from that body, and it is true in the giving of God's Son for us, the promised Messiah. He came through them. Where they failed, he prevailed. Where they sinned, he remained sinless. Even if some were people of faith, like David or Martha, the people of Israel were expected to live out their lives under the law. The sad fact of the matter, however, is that none of them was able to do this perfectly. The testimony to this is that all of them, every one of them, minus Elijah, who was taken alive to heaven, are dead. This does not mean that they are forever lost. If they were people of faith in the promise of Messiah, they shall rise again, just as Job knew that he too would rise, and just as Martha knew that Lazarus would rise. However, they, meaning the people of Israel, were given as examples to us that the law could never save anyone. Every one of them is just as dead as Job is. They did not prevail over the law that was given to them. Well, not until God did the miraculous and accomplished all things himself through the giving of Christ Jesus. It is through faith in him, whether looking forward to him as Job did, or looking back on him as I hope each one of you do, by which the people of faith have that promise realized. The righteous requirements of the law are now fulfilled in us through Jesus Christ, if we will simply accept that it is so. In this, God reckons us as justified. Paul says that Abraham stood justified before God, but Abraham came before the law, didn't he? He also says that by deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in God's sight, but rather that a man is justified apart from deeds of the law. If that is so, then it is solely by faith. God, in his bountiful grace, gave us the gift of life when he gave us the gift of his son. And it is through faith in that and faith in that alone that we become full and complete sons of God. Enoch walked with the God. Noah walked with the God. And you too can have a close and personal walk with the God when you walk in faith with Jesus Christ. And so today I would ask you to do so. Reach out to him. Believe that he died for your sins. Have faith that he was buried, but that he rose again according to the scriptures to bring you back to full and complete restoration with God. Please, please do that today. Now I'd like to give you another hint of the fact that this is what this is speaking of from the book of Job in the first chapter. And let me read it to you. This is going to take a second and I... Don't want to keep you here all day, but I think you'll appreciate this if you've never heard it before. I'm sure many of you have, but it's a wonderful part of Job that is speaking of exactly what we're talking about right here. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was blameless and upright and one who feared God and shunned evil. Okay, everybody got that? He's a good guy, and the Bible is acknowledging that. And seven sons and three daughters were born to him. Also, his possessions were 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 female donkeys, and a very large household, so that this man was greatest of all the people of the East. Everybody got that? You remember what I just said? Okay, I'm going to take you to the last chapter of Job. And it says here, Now the Lord blessed the latter days of Job more than his beginning, for he had 14,000 sheep. What did it say in the beginning? He had 7,000 sheep, okay? And then it says 6,000 camels. How many did he have at the beginning? 3,000 camels. 1,000 yoke of oxen. How many did he have at the beginning? 500. And 1,000 female donkeys. How many did he have at the beginning? 
500. God doubled everything for him, right? And then it says he also had seven sons and three daughters. Didn't God double his children? Because he started out with seven sons and three daughters. Or what was it? Was that what it was? Yeah, seven sons and three daughters. Did God jip him? No. He was a man of faith. He knew that he never lost those seven sons and three daughters. They died, but he did not lose them. And the book of Job is telling us that. The hope of Messiah is the hope of anybody that is in Messiah is not lost. It's a wonderful lesson for you to remember because we all are going to lose somebody in our life or maybe we already have. And if they are in Christ, they are in Christ. After reading that John 11 to my friends who lost their daughter and they still struggle with it to this day, we found her Bible. And on the front of it is the day she committed her life to Jesus Christ. She will rise again. This is our hope. And if you don't have that hope, today is the day to get that behind you. Jesus Christ came to do all of this for you, so you don't have to do anything except simply believe. This is what God asks for you. He doesn't ask for you to give money to a church. He does not ask for you to help old ladies across the street, which is a good idea. But he doesn't ask you to do any of those things. He just simply asks you to believe that I have it all worked out. I promised it at the beginning, and I will follow through with my word. This is what God asks of you. Thank God for Jesus Christ. Please call out to him today. Our closing verse comes from 1 John 5. It's verses 19 and 20. We know, we don't question, we know that we are of God. And the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. He's the guy down on the earth that is described in Job 1 and Job 2. Okay, and he's coming among people on the earth, not angels. That's a misconception that even I possessed until Benzer straightened me out. Thank you, Benzer. Because, you know, I just, I never even thought of it. I just assumed. Got it? Take things in their proper context. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us an understanding that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true. In his Son, Jesus Christ, this is the true God and eternal life. Next week, Deuteronomy 14, 3 through 21. That's a lot more verses than this week. It is a responsibility not to be ignored. It's entitled, The Holy People to the Lord. That'll be our 45th Deuteronomy sermon. And I'll tell you this, the Lord has you exactly where he wants you. He has a good plan and he has a purpose for you. But he also has expectations of you as he prepares you for entrance into his land of promise. Right here, this is the big one. Know him. Because you can't know what his expectations are if you don't know what they are. And this is where you get them, okay? So follow him and trust him. And he will do marvelous things for you and through you, okay? Read your Bible. I got a question for you. And then we'll have a rather long poem. (laughs) Cain is mentioned three times in the New Testament. John says that he was of the wicked one. I cited some verses earlier, and I don't know if anybody looked for them, but Jude says that apostates have gone in the way of Cain. But what other time is Cain mentioned? Three times in the New Testament. John, Jude, one other. Come on, you got a car. Say it again, out loud. Hebrews, what chapter? Who said that? He did. Who said you? Who? Oh, doctor did. Okay, well, you got the Hebrews and you got the 11. So, Ray, I want you to take that car. It's over here somewhere, unless it got moved. It's right there. Okay, I want you to take that car and give it to a niece or a nephew or something. And then from there, you let him borrow the tires once in a while to drive around with. Okay, let me take you to Hebrews. 
And we're going we're gonna to read that really quickly just so you know what it's talking about. Three times Cain is mentioned. And guess what? Everything comes down to a right relationship with God by one word and one word alone. What is that word? Begins with A-F and ends with eighth. Anybody? There you go. Faith. Very good. Okay, sharp crowd here. That says here, um, how do we know who is the Son of God and who isn't? It says right here in Hebrews 11, verse 4, by faith, faith, Abel offered to God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained a witness that he was righteous. Faith in the God is what made him righteous. That's why Genesis chapter 4 is there. And it tells that genealogy. And then Genesis 5 gives another genealogy. This is called progressive revelation. God is progressively revealing things. And then he goes back and fills in the details. Everybody got that? Let me read that again. Um, uh, witness that he was righteous, God testifying of his gifts, and through it, being dead, still speaks. His faith. By faith. That's all that God expects of us. This isn't a difficult thing. It's, but it is, isn't it? It's hard for us to put ourselves aside and say, I'm going to trust. But that's what God asks of us. This is entitled, Sons of the Lord God. You are the children of the Lord your God, just as the Lord to you has said. You shall not cut yourselves, nor shave the front of your head for the dead. For you are a holy people to the Lord your God. And the Lord has chosen you to be a people for himself. Such is your positional worth, a special treasure above all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. Lord God, turn our hearts to be obedient to your word. Give us wisdom to be ever faithful to you. May we carefully heed each thing we have heard. Yes, Lord God, may our hearts be faithful and true. And we shall be content and satisfied in you alone. We will follow you as we sing our songs of praise. Hallelujah to you. To us, your path you have shown. Hallelujah. We shall sing to you for all of our days. Hallelujah and amen. Heavenly Father, we certainly do thank you. We thank you for the wonder of becoming a son of God through faith in Jesus Christ. What a, what a treat, what a blessing, and what a thing to even contemplate. That all the way through your word, that one thing is all that you ask of us. The law was given, but it was still based on faith when it came down to it because they had the day of atonement where they had to exercise faith to atone for the sins that they know they had committed. So we thank you that we stand in the record of the righteous by that same simple act, by faith in what Jesus Christ has done. All hail, all hail the name of Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. Um, secondly, um, I have a question for all of you. If anybody gets this wrong, you're out of here. <laughs> Who are the sons of the God in Genesis chapter 6? Are they angels or are they human beings? Human beings. Okay, there we go. All right. Just wanted to make sure you're all paying attention. If you disagree, just don't disagree out loud because... <laughs>